My prayer is that uh, as we journey through this series, that it would bless uh, each one of us. Uh, whether we are in a season where we know God's presence with us profoundly, or, or whether we find ourselves in a time of dryness, where perhaps it's been a long time since we've known his refreshing, known his presence with us. And I hope that as we dwell upon who God is and what he's done for us, uh, so we pray, we meditate, and we sing of those truths, that the Holy Spirit would again, in each one of us, uh, fan into flame that love for him. And Psalm 48 is a wonderful psalm to meditate on. Now the psalm is, uh, is headed uh, as a song, uh, but the Hebrew word here is uh, a word that means a joyful song. And what I'm going to do, as, uh, as Rob said, is just look at this in four parts. Uh, really, that uh, 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 really to provide us with a few reflections that might act as a, as a scaffolding upon which to hang our own prayers uh, and a time of quiet as we journey through the service this evening. This is where we're going. We're going to look at uh, the psalm in four parts. The greatness of God, verses 1 to 3, the weakness of humanity. Uh, the great mercy of God, and then the transforming power of God. So let's start with the greatness of God. And let's just look at uh, uh, really the opening words uh, of the psalm. Uh, he starts with, great is the Lord. Great is the Lord. Uh, the mind uh, and the heart of the psalmist is drawn to gaze upward, to dwell on just how great God is. Now the Bible tells us that all things, all things were created by God. The sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens. Uh, such is the greatness and the power and the majesty of God that he simply spoke. And all that God purposed was created from nothing. God created everything that we can see and the things that we can't. And it's not just that God creates, but God is also the one who sustains all things. From the distant galaxies to the very atoms of our being. And it's not a strain or a struggle for God to do that. He does that just with the word of his power. In power and in might and in majesty, there is none like God. No person is like God. There is no God but the one true God. Every other God is a man-made invention, an idol. The one true God, the psalmist reminds us, is greatness itself. Nothing and no one comes close. And this God that we worship, this great God, the psalmist says, is holy. There is no spot or blemish about his name or about him. He is the one who is completely and utterly righteous, good and just. There is none like him. But just as striking this one true God who is great is revealed not as being distant 
remote or aloof or uninterested, but rather is the one who amazingly draws near. Uh, This is the one who is great, and yet he has settled himself in the midst of a people that he has drawn for himself. And the city is defined by God. The city reflects something of the glory of God. It's not the other way around. And because it's God who defines the place, the mountain upon which God descends is holy. It's the beauty of God that colours, that shapes, that moulds the mountain, draws it up, makes it beautiful. It's God who makes it beautiful. And this great, holy, beautiful and joyous God is the one who comes down. So let me just suggest three things for us to ponder and pray. Firstly, that this Lord God who is mighty is the one to be praised. He is greatly to be praised. To glimpse even the coattails of his greatness is to draw our hearts out in praise. Uh, When popping corn, uh, if you put it on a, a hot plate, it erupts, doesn't it? It erupts and it pops. And I wonder if that image of eruption and popping reflects our hearts as they draw near to the hot plate of God. Do they erupt and pop with praise? So pray that the Holy Spirit would give you a vision of God's greatness, that your heart would glimpse it and erupt with praise. So firstly, God is praiseworthy. Secondly, that this great Lord God is the joy of the whole earth. That this one who's great, utterly great, is the one in whom the joy of the whole world is found. That how that happens will come to later. But for now, suffice it to say that this great God who comes down is the joy of the world. So secondly, God brings joy to those who know him. And I wonder if that's true for our hearts. And thirdly, that this great God who settles on this mountain and draws his people to himself, this city of God, this palace. It serves both to reflect the glory of God and to be a refuge for his people. The power that creates all things, sustains all things, comes down, comes close. It protects and keeps away ultimate harm. The God brings near his greatness for your protection and for mine. So thirdly, God comes down to protect his people. And I wonder, have you trusted that God has indeed leant down and hedged you in to protect you? Let me read Psalm 48 verses 4 through 7. For behold, the kings assembled They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them, their 
anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. The psalmist now turns the camera lens away from the extremely wide angle that he needed when dwelling upon the greatness of God. And the lens now narrows, focuses, and zooms in to pick out the smallness of the leaders of the people of the world. There are many kings that come, many kings that come to the one true great king. The ones that the people have chosen as their mighty and great leaders, the best of the best, the finest that humanity can offer. Uh, The sense of the word that the psalmist uses to describe the king's coming uh, is as having banded together, joined forces. They come to show their greatness to God. The kings come with their pride, not understanding that everything that they have comes from God. And as the best of humanity come to present themselves and to challenge God, the psalmist describes what happens as they see the greatness of God. As they see the greatness of God, these people who the whole of humanity sees as the best of the best, the Jeff Bezos, the Elon Musk, maybe the Rishi Sunak, the Kardashians, the influencers, and Harry Kane, as they see just how great God is, they're undone. They're completely undone. They're filled with the realization of their own smallness. As they see the greatness of God, the city of God, they are astounded. They're in panic and they run. They trembled and were in anguish. And the mighty ships that allowed these kings to cross oceans, the private jets, if you like, of these people, they're broken by the east winds summoned by God. The kings realize that however great they think their own greatness is, it's nothing compared to the greatness of the one true king. And compared to the greatness of God, we realize too that we are small. And God is beyond our ability to imagine. We're finite creatures when God is the eternal one who creates all things. That God is truly great and we are weak and helpless. Perhaps we could reflect on where in our lives perhaps we think God is small. Not realizing our own smallness, but we think that God is small. Not realizing our own weakness, perhaps we think that God in our lives is weak. Do we think that God either won't be able to carry us? through a season of trial or perhaps he doesn't care enough to carry us through a season of trial so we find ourselves overcome with worry we worry because we think we have to do all things because God can't or do we think that God is maybe not as great as the things that the world offers the world's treasures and pleasures 
So we seek to find comfort and solace in unhealthy practices or unwise relationships or in unruly behavior. I wonder where in our lives are we like these kings that approach the one great king and perhaps think that he isn't great when we think that God is small. So the psalmist and the people gather together. Uh, Notice uh, in the psalm, he says in verse 9, we, we, we have thought on your steadfast love, O God. In verse 9, the psalmist says that he's thought and dwelt upon the steadfast love of God, his loving kindness. They look back. And they remember that God settled his love on the people of Israel. Not because they were mighty, not because they were more numerous. God loved the people because God loved the people. They didn't merit or earn the love that they had received. God settled his love upon them. Now they look back and they remember that God rescued his people from bondage to slavery under the Egyptians. He brought them through the Red Sea and then through the wilderness. He planted his people into a land to give them to them. And they remember the wars that God had won to drive out God's enemies. They remember that God chose to make his dwelling place among them, the temple city. But they also look back and they remember the rebellion of God's people. The way that they'd rebelled against God's leaders and God's prophets. They'd run after the kings of this world. And they remember how they ran after idols and rejected God himself. And our story in many ways is like the people of Israel. We were rescued from bondage to slavery. We were living under the penalty of death. And we were rescued and brought near to God. Yet we took the goodness and the love of God for granted. We ran after idols. We chose to put on the crown of the king. And like the people of Israel. And we found that our love for God was not steadfast. And the psalmist in verse 9 says he thinks about what God is like, about what God has done. And he remembers that despite the rebellion of the people of Israel, the psalmist remembers that God stayed with them. Despite their repeated rebellion and rejection of God, God's love had been steadfast unwavering and with them in the midst of the temple. And standing there in the midst of the temple, he sees sacrifice. And because of the sacrifice in the temple, the death of an animal dying as a substitute for them in their place, the psalmist knew that God would make a way for his unholy people to live with him, the great and holy God. And that causes an eruption of praise, of gladness, and of rejoicing 
But what about us? Are we see not the sacrifice of bulls and calves? We see that in God's steadfast love, God sent his one and only son to pay the price of our rebellion. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and then he died the death that we deserve in our place. A permanent, sufficient and perfect sacrifice for our rebellion. We've been made right because Jesus was the true sacrifice. The true king of kings came and even though he had all the power, he surrendered that power so that he could pay our penalty. On the cross, Jesus was broken, torn and bled for us in our place. He was utterly cast out so that you and I could be brought in. God's love for us, for you and for me, is so great that he sent his only son to die in our place. God, knowing his people from before the dawn of time, settled his love on those who would choose and trust in Christ. If you trust in Christ, I want you to know this afresh in your heart this evening. You have been chosen. You've been saved, safe in God's arms, completely and utterly forgiven, restored and adopted as his child. And that's a love that can never, never be taken from you. It's a steadfast love. It's a love that causes our hearts to be glad and to rejoice. So let's uh, turn back to the psalm and we'll read from verse 11 through 14. Let Mount Zion be glad, let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. The psalmist has meditated on the greatness of God. He's thought about the contrast between the kings of the world and the one true great king. And he's meditated on the mercy, the loving kindness and the steadfast love of God. As indeed have we. And there was an eruption of praise in the hearts of the people. And they now gather together and they move about the city. They move from the midst of the temple out into the city. The truths that they've been reflecting on have landed in their hearts with such force, with such strength, and with such beauty that it propels them out of the temple And into the city. Out they go. They walk about the city of God and marvel at all that's been built. Her towers, her ramparts and her citadels. All this strength and wonder because God is there. They've been propelled out into the city by the truths that have stirred in their hearts. And 
fanned into flame their love for God. The truths that have set their hearts ablaze burst out of their mouths like a river torrent. The truths of God's greatness and his steadfast love are now the truths that their mouths declare. Their joy, their delight, their most profound heart's desire is in verse 13 to tell this to the next generation. To speak and to tell others of the truths of the greatness of God. And that's true, isn't it? All the more for us today. We know of God's steadfast love for us because we know of that love displayed on the cross. And the temple that we stand in the midst of today, well, it's a temple of miracles. Each one of us is a living stone. Each one of us is a miracle. The saving work of God in our lives has moved each one of us who trust in God from death to life. And that gift of new life that we enjoy as Christians, it is a miraculous, supernatural gift from God. And we marvel not at towers and ramparts and citadels of a physical building, but at us, the living stones that God is building together as the temple of his Holy Spirit. And we marvel because one day we will be united as his bride to Christ. And the psalmist reminds us that the message of hope that we have is of the greatness of God, the greatness of what God has done for us in and through Christ. And the message is of hope, not just for this life, but the psalmist tells us, through all eternity. The message of hope is that God will guide us. In fact, he will never abandon us, he will never leave us, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus. God will guide us forever. And it's a truth that transcends death. What a truth. What a great hope. What a great God. Amen. And to the degree that we will let those truths sink into the deepest parts of our hearts the more we will have the power to live transformed lives, lives for God's glory. I hope you're hungering and thirsting for that.